Welcome to Vermont Artists and Authors, where we interview great storytellers and artists from the amazing Green Mountain State. This is episode 13. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have with us the acclaimed and distinguished author and former Attorney General, Kimberly Cheney. Kim, thanks for coming on the show. Hello, Barney. Glad to be here. And you're here. You just uh, you just recently published, as of last February, um, a memoir book. I did. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that. And so did you start working on this after retirement when you retired in 2018 or had you been working on this for a while before that? Yes. I, in, in that sense, I think um, the beginning of any book is a story that's kicking around in your head. And mm. sometimes it has different chapters and sometimes a couple stand out. As I got older and wondered what, life was all about. I said, well, it's only about stories. There, there is no other, if you ever meet anybody, you ask them what happened, they'll tell you a story. Right. Very few people go off and tell you about being converted by reading St. Thomas Aquinas and the rest of it. They might do that, but usually it's a story of some life event that they want you to know about. Right. Well, they were rattling around in my head. So right now, your your book's available, as we said, it's on um, rootstockpublishing.com, which is you get this published. So when you initially were looking at getting this book, when you started working on the draft, at what point did you say, all right, so I got something here. How did you get that ball rolling on getting uh, the book actually in, into like book format instead of, you know, off of the screen? Well, I think anybody that starts writing a book first has a story to tell and they want to tell it. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> like most of my stories, when I begin talking about them, I like them more and more. <laughs> you become infatuated with your own stories. So, and then you work on it. And I've been writing all my life, essays and expository pieces mainly. Mm -hmm. When I came to be a publisher, uh, I talked to a friend of mine uh, who had published a book and um, I asked him how he did it and he said rootstock and I put, I don't know, I solicited a few, but rootstock was local in Montpelier and I had people that were familiar with it. Mm. It's not something I do every day. Um, right. It's a whole other industry and a whole other way of life and, and not something to do if you've never ever done it before, although I made a history of doing things I've never ever done before. <laughs> that wasn't what I wanted to take on. <laughs> what were some of the things where you knew as, as a memoir, what were some of those those masthead points in your career that you know you, you have to dedicate a chunk of this? Well, if I like to collect glittering generalities in my spare time. So I think most people are interested in family and then they're interested in their career. Right. And those are the two things that really uh, determine a life. And since stories are all that life is about, I thought those would be good places to sort of write about. Right kind of a twin theme of my book. Right. 
and compare because as you mentioned before you said like you'd write essays or as a lawyer and and, and you're you're not unfamiliar with the written word how how much easier or was it more complicated a bit for you to writing these two separate types of prose basically well i think they're completely different i think um writing a memoir is sort of like this interview mm. you're sitting down with somebody and you're telling a story and yet some experience of writing and vocabulary and different ways of expressing things uh, obviously come to mind. We all have echoes in our head of things we've read and things we liked and didn't like. And we don't even know how they got there, but there they are and you, and you use them. Right. But I think the thing that got me started, oddly enough, was a course in daily themes it was like a sophomore year at Yale course. And the idea was every day you had to write about something, mm. uh, four or five paragraphs. And that was a challenge mm. because you then look, I mean, I used to study my roommates what the hell are they doing today? Why are they doing that? Um, uh, because you had to get something down on paper about an event. Right. And it was supposed to be artistic. You can't just say this happened, that happened. Right. You're supposed to have a point. <laughs> <laughs> What's the point of writing something if you don't have a story? <laughs> I found that training for almost everything I did in life. We talked earlier, in your old age, you look back and why am I doing this? And well, it goes back to seeing a scene at a meeting or something. And think about writing three or four paragraphs about who was being a jerk and who was making sense and what was the outcome, you know? And I think that's the essence of storytelling. And it's, it's a very different discipline than writing a legal brief right. from point to point. Yeah. It's over 250 pages. It's 262 pages. So there's a, there's a lot of book there, which is, there's a lot of stories. Is there, was there some points where like you said, I love this. I love what happened to me here. Like there's like some great stories that you wanted to tell, but you, you had to try to find a way to, as you say, make a, like a moral to it or make a, a lesson out of it or, so what were some of those what were some of those stories that you just um you were excited to put down on paper? Well, if you read the book, they're all serendipity. Okay. You just don't know. You wander into a basket of thieves or saints and you don't know the outcome. <laughs> you're not quite sure how you got there and what you're supposed to do with it. But here's a set of circumstances that are alien to you right and uh something in your psyche challenges you to put it down i think the story i tell about my first meeting with a county sheriff 
we'd both been elected, and I was state's attorney. And uh, I'd never been state's attorney. I'd never been a prosecutor. Did, did a couple of criminal cases, but it was all pretty primitive. And he comes in and says, I heard this on the radio, that there'd been a chase and a teen driver had come flying through town at some awful speed and he chased him and it resulted in a crash and the teener was uh, injured. And the sheriff wanted me to bring various charges against him. And I asked them all about it, and I go into some detail in the book, and when I got all done, I said, you know, I don't know who was the villain of this story. Mm. We had a guy, irresponsible teenager, driving through town at 70, 80 miles an hour, and a sheriff chasing him, and it resulted in a crash. Right. And I said, well... I don't know how I got this job, but somebody's asking me to say, who's the bad guy here? <laughs> and the sheriff gave me the papers and asked me to sign a warrant. And I said, I put him on my desk. And he looked at me, he said, what are you doing? I said, I can't quit, quite figure out which one of you to charge. <laughs> and he didn't like that very much. And after he left and I thought about it, I didn't like it very much. Right. But it was, it was true. This wild chases through town at any cost to catch the bad guy. Uh, there's got to be a better way, if at all possible. Mm. You know, there's a whole spectrum of possible things. Uh, how drunk is the guy, and who else is he going to kill if I don't stop him? And uh, what violent crime has he committed and will he get away? I mean, there's a whole panoply of serious stuff, but there still should be a process for trying to stop people and alerting them to put out spikes and whatever you do um, so we don't have wild chases that are going to hurt innocent people. And that was like my first and second day on the job, and I said, oh, this is interesting. I never had to think about these things before. Well, what else is next? So there's a story. Right. Because you were a state's attorney, then you were the attorney general for Vermont from 73 to 75. Yes. Right. Okay. How was that different from, at, at, at what level did you, was that also a level of serendipity? Did someone say, hey, you should run for attorney general? Or was that? Uh, no, I think it was ego. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're 38. You're because you're pretty young. I mean, at 38. At yeah, well, I know I didn't want to make a career of being state's attorney. Okay. It's a fascinating job, but it is kind of repetitive. And there was an opportunity, and I had a lot of support in the county. As I, frankly, I enjoyed the uh, support I got from taking a different position on things and finding support and allies. And it's amazing when you get an elected job and you say, oh, I can do this, I can do that. 
you know, what are the limits? What, right. what is it? Why are you here? What are you trying to do? There's a lot of important questions to ask. Right. And the attorney general job, of course, was totally new to me. And uh, But there's a learning curve there. And we, they're both very complex stories, if you want to know more about them. And is there also a sense to you talk about this, like as a as an attorney general, is there a level of, you know, after the fact, is there a level of camaraderie or familiarness with other state attorney, like other attorney generals of the state? Do you, is there conversations you had with other attorney well, generals? Yes, there was Jimmy Jeffords. Yeah. Who had just lost uh, his bid for governor. And uh, so he was in private practice, biding his time to, for his next political adventure. Yeah. And, uh, but I didn't have a lot of connection with him personally. We had met and I think uh, had some confidence in each other and there wasn't any animosity. Right. Afterwards, I've enjoyed meeting with former attorneys general um, because we've all had a common experience. That's interesting, but I think finding myself in an environment that I read about and seen pictures of and read in the newspapers about, but then actually being responsible for some decisions, and you make your own opportunities right. or mistakes, whichever it is, and you spend some time chewing on them, and then there are external events that you have to respond to. That, like my story about the sheriff that he, he just didn't anticipate. So what are you going to do with that? Here's, here's an event right. that has political and practical significance. Right. And it's time to get your head around what makes sense. Like any decision, I'm going to be able to say you're stupid and you're wrong. <laughs> so it takes a certain spot and just say, okay, I've thought this through. That's what I think is the best thing to do here. And so it's kind of like balancing that issues of like, you know, the bureaucracy and pragmatism in a way. And do you see your set, do you see um, um, uh, as you're, do you, what points were you like, you know, in your career that you were, that, that you mentioned in your memoir that you're, you're really proud of? I was the first full-time state's attorney in Washington County. And that's, that's a big difference. Uh, it used to be part-time jobs and private lawyers would take them, but they, they didn't get any extra pay for working hard and they, they just didn't get hold of things. And, but once it's a full-time job, you get an opportunity to set a standard of how this is going to function. What, what is a premier job here? That's a very complex story, but um, I, I found early in life that politicians can do stupid things to get votes. Yeah. And in the long run, when you have the public responsibility, you have to keep an eye on what's best for the world that you want to live in, not, right. not the public exactly although hopefully they overlap, but 
But the question is, what kind of world do you want to see happen here? What are you going to do to bring it about? Hmm. I think the state's attorney job gave me a lot of opportunities to deal with issues like that and then figure out what made sense under a certain amount of pressure and then looking back on it and saying, well, okay, I came out okay on that one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or, uh uh-oh, maybe I could have done better next time. Yeah. Because you, you, when you were in your position, this was around, as, it, as we said, from like 73 to 75, when Vermont itself was going through a, st- the, the start of a culture shift from, uh, and oh, was yeah. it around that time as well when they went from the House of Representatives and Vermont's representatives was going from town-specific representation to population? Was that around that time too? Yeah, the legislature had been reapportioned. I think it was a renaissance in Vermont, and there were two things that went on, reapportionment and what we call the hippie migration, which I I was one of them. (laughs) Uh, But there was an in-migration into the state, and there were a lot of so-called hippies. They wound up contributing a lot. They were energetic and, and interesting, and then, of course, there were a lot of professionals and other people who got sick of cities and wanted. And it was an optimistic time and a very, the Vietnam War was going full more and Woodstock, you know, love and sex were taking over and it was, culturally a very disturbing time for an awful lot of people. Mm. And being a prosecutor and prosecuting crimes in that area, yeah, there's standard crimes, you know, kill people and so forth. But um, there's also a measure of degree of how you're going to treat things. And part of it's a political I am what you think the public will stand, but more importantly, it's what you think is the right thing to do and hope your your public will agree with you. It was an exhilarating experience. I really enjoyed doing it. Was there anything that you were not surprised or surprised at that you were either right on or wrong with with some any any ideas of, of predictions on how, well, how states um, the Vietnam War and the the hippie culture and drugs Mm. were a serious cultural change. I was not in favor of the war on drugs, Mm. even though it came in just as I was state's attorney and and Richard Nixon's invention of the thing. Um, The war on drugs was a big Republican story. I had studied prohibition. And I said, well, this is going to fail. It's going to do what prohibition always does, which is um, provoke more crime than it resolves and more corruption. So I had a little bit of a tightrope to walk because a fair amount of parents with kids in school, when kids were experiencing a whole new cultural shift, had a lot of anxiety. 
and rightfully they didn't want their kids taking drugs and they thought some authority should see to it that they don't. Since my parents tried to see to it that I didn't do certain things and I defied them, I said, this isn't going to work. <laughs> uh, you have to involve the kids and you have to get people to think about the future and not go down an alleyway in the past of prohibition that is doomed to fail. Right. Well, many years later, it's clear that it did fail. And the whole political dialogue is about rehabilitation and mental health. So, yes, you asked me, am I proud of it? Yeah, I'm, I was right about that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by and large, the, the people in the county supported me. You know, you have to ride a bicycle down a white strip at high speeds and hope you don't fall off the strip because... <laughs> There's, there's one side that thinks you're absolutely insane to counter to cater to the drug people on the other side that says, hey, you can't make me, I'm just going to do whatever you say. Yeah. The opposite of, you know. And yet you have the prosecution authority. If you want to, you can send people to jail eventually. So you have to ask yourself, is this where we should be going? Maybe this person, maybe not that person. And yet there's something quite illegal about that. There's a law that says what you're supposed to do. It's not like you get elected and you have complete authority to ignore the law. So it's a delicate balance. I guess in a larger word, I call it justice rather than law. Mm. Those are fascinating experiences and uh, learning how to manage them is what a politician has to do. That's what politics is all about. So it was a training ground for uh, political skills. So was it was there anything that after you went out of there and then you started working on you know, some different boards and committees and stuff? Was there anything that you you picked up later in your career that you wished you had that knowledge or that expertise? while you were the Vermont Attorney General? Well, <laughs> as you know, I lost my bid for re-election by 500 votes state. I don't think there's ever been a, a closer yeah. Attorney General. To answer your question directly, I wish I'd had the skills or luck of Patrick Leahy. <laughs> <laughs> he was a real mentor to me. He's a brilliant politician. I don't begrudge him that. I think I think um, we need good politicians. And it's a skill like anything else. You can't be a good lawyer or a good doctor or a good TV interviewer without some experience and a, and a point of view and, and a desire to achieve some kind of an outcome that you think is important. Hmm. So I think politics is a very honorable and difficult profession. It's not easy. But it takes a lot of stuff, uh, family, money, and other things that aren't always easy to come by. Yeah. <laughs> and so so talk to us a bit about, you know, what point, like when you, when you look at your, your memoir, as you're putting it together, 
uh, did you share it with um, some peers and colleagues that were around you at that time to say, hey, did I get this right? Because as, as a way, it was to, your memory kind of has yeah, rose-colored glasses in a way. That's a tough question. I, I found a really good editor, mm. Dirk Pansustran, who had a lot of newspaper experience and actually some lawyers in his family. And the hardest question I had was what to do with personal life. Right. Some of which, at the very least, uh, disappointing. He urged me to go ahead and tell that story. It's part of your story. Hemmed and hawed about it. I said, yes, that is part of my story. If you're going to write a memoir, let's get it all on the table. You were you were being attorney general at uh, the time when you had a marriage that was coming apart through very odd circumstances, you know, and your wife was about to leave you and you were perfectly happy to have her go. Mm. But you had two kids and a life to kind of pull together and wonder how you got there. It was a time of a lot of introspection. Right. And it required thinking about and to put that into a memoir, I think enriched the book. I, I think in a way... I refer to Dirk as my therapist. He'd look at me and he'd say, well, Kim, yeah? Why did you do that? And then how did you feel? What, whatever possessed you, et cetera. You know, I go, oh, okay, here we go. Buried in most lives are incidents like that where we look back on them and forget what we can and learn from what we can't, but they're always with us. So uh, since my theme was to tell the story of a life, so, well, this is a big part of my life. I should put some of that in here. Right. And how much of that did you, as you're writing it down, did you get feedback from your editing friends to say, you know, this reads a little bit too much. Like a, you got to put in some more inner dialogue, like having some of those self-reflections during those moments. Was that a lot of the things you kind of had to add to it as well? Well, I did get feedback. People said, oh, my God, you went through all that? <laughs> I'd feel sorry for myself. Yeah. And they'd say, but it enriches the story. You should keep it there. It's a cliche, but it passed the prologue. When I married, my wife was pregnant by somebody else who I didn't know. Mm. And I had just released a child for adoption. And it was very chaotic. But there we were as it turns out in Japan, because I was stationed in Korea at the time. So am I gonna send her back? And then what, you know, it was, was not a happy <laughs> beginning. And the upshot of it was that both children were released for adoption and many years later, I essentially was a force to totally rewrite Amer uh, Vermont's adoption laws. Mm. And I had the skill to do that because I'd worked in the legislature and had personal experience with it. Making something good out of, out of some things that in the past that weren't very good. I mean, we have all these laws that grow up where people say, oh, God, this happened to me, and I want a law to prevent it from happening to somebody else. Mm. And the adoption story is in many ways the same. It's very emotional, and, and uh, but it's very human. Right. You have to get to know people and who they really are, and you have to push through people's facades. And 
the stories they tell the people that try to appear accepted. But we all have those stories. We don't share them with everybody. But if you're not alive, you're going to have some of those stories. And so I figured, well, that's my life. I should put them in. Mm. Was there any parts as you were writing this, you know, some of your friends that were helping you read it say, hey, maybe you should take this part out or maybe you should add more to this or that were part of the manuscript that you kind of had to Oh yeah, there were, there, sure. There were some very good edits, clumsy stories or writing, or this just doesn't make sense at this point. Right. Get rid of it or put it somewhere else. Yes, of course. Yeah. It was very helpful. Was there were any specific stories that you wanted to keep in that you <laughs> were kind of told to take out? One of the things about being a lawyer, especially in private practice, is there's confidentiality. You're not <laughs> going to tell everybody what your client said and did and so forth. Right. Uh, even though many of them illustrate your views of justice. As I said um, in my book, being a lawyer in private practice is politics by other means. Mm. It's convincing your client about a life changes or courses that may help him or her get where they want to go. It's also about uh, hopefully convincing judges, other lawyers, that there's an area here where we should work together to, you know, to improve what we see as justice together. So there's a lot of very interesting work that goes on. And it's often painstaking and time-consuming and, in a word, difficult, but it's it's work worth doing. Right. That's interesting when you brought that up because there is – so you, you had, like, maybe some specific stories that you really liked to tell in your private practice, but based off of the fact that, you know, as you say, it's just the um, – you know, that you know the, the the confidentiality piece. Even if you fictionalize the names, someone might recognize the story. Is that what you were worried about too? Yeah, I did some fictionalization to tell a story, and I think I point out in the book that I've done that from time to time. But the book is not about the ins and outs of private law practice and clients that you've achieved great right. things for. It's mainly about what I regard as achievements in public life. Right. Do, you, do you see, as you say, there like a, the overall theme itself would be either serendipity or, or you know, hard work or, or you know, knowing the right people? What would you say that's like the... the, the I, right both. Um, I like Teddy Roosevelt's quotes. Um, when somebody offers you a job, you say, can you do that? Say, sure, I can do that. Then you get the job, and then you got to figure out how to do it. <laughs> no idea how to do it. The spirit with which work should be entertained. I mean, uh, I wouldn't volunteer to do uh, serious surgery, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but as a lawyer, I, I never tried murder trial. And, well, I can do that. <laughs> I did modestly well. There wasn't anybody else to do the job, and there you are. So figure it out and do it. <laughs> and, you know, getting hold of the educational establishment in the time of turmoil when I first came to Vermont. Right. I mean, I totally made that up. They, they thought they should have a lawyer in the education department. 
but they never had a lawyer. They never knew what a lawyer would do for education. And there was some chit chat that, well, you know, the laws are sort of complicated and aren't working very well, figure that out. So I went to the library and I looked up education laws and said, this is useless. (laughs) I'm not gonna learn anything in the library. They taught you at law school, you go to the library. So I got in my car and I went to every fight I could find about education. Um, Whether it was a new school or some uh, school board that was embattled or uh, state aid fights or, or whatever they were. Right. And I found, not surprisingly, that people always cited the law as the reason why they were taking the position they did. And a lot of it was nonsense because the law didn't say that at all. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was safe ground for combatants to say the law required me to do this. Yeah. So what I found was that this kind of vocabulary was an excuse for power struggles between the various educational establishments, superintendents, principals, teachers, students, parents. I figured it was needed. Well, let's, let's sit down and figure out who should be doing what right. to make, and what's the object of this? Well, Harvey Scribner, a commissioner, was a brilliant guy. He said, well, Kim, Everybody tell you education's for the kids. Well, it isn't. It's for the people that make money out of it. Mm. Teachers, school board members that get prestige. uh, Those are the people that the system is geared up to serve. That sounded sort of cynical to me, but I said, well, let's have a look at how all this works. Mm. It still comes down to what decisions should be made at what level and by whom and how, and how much democracy and how much autonomy and how much autocracy do you need? And so I put together a revision of the governance sections and the people in the legislature liked it. (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of years later, we had a complete revision of the educational governance section had a compliment from a former education commissioner. He said, I loved reading Title 16. That's where the education was. I could read it. It was clear. I knew what it meant. And I could <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I got that one right. <laughs> and so I got, I got interested in not only what the law is, but if you don't like it, fix it. You right. Know? You're not stuck in a in a past. All laws are created over some different social time and milieu of what seems important. Mm. And those change and they get obsolete and don't work. So fix them. Right. Yeah. And it's a very, very pragmatic job. When I got to be attorney general, I did a complete rewrite of the criminal code. I said, the problem with law enforcement isn't whether cops are tough or or not tough. 
it's that the laws are so obscure and the different elements of offenses, nobody knows what they mean anymore. Hmm. They're old and we got to go read case law for a century ago to find out what the hell they mean. And I said, well, let's, let's just clean this up. And that took a big part of my first year as attorney general. A complete rewrite of the criminal law isn't something to be done lightly. Mm. But I got it done and got it in front of the legislature, got it through the House. And it got to the Senate. And people wanted to tack capital punishment back into it. And we hadn't had capital punishment in Vermont for years, but they wanted to reinstate it. Mm. Gary Buckley, who was in the senator and later, I think, uh, uh, lieutenant governor, was a big believer and was helping me out. And <laughs> we were stalled, and it was adjournment time, and we weren't going to get this bill through. He proposed what he called the three-eyed witness <laughs> proposal. That okay, we'll go for, we'll go, we'll, we'll approve capital punishment, but it'll have to be observed by three eyewitnesses. So we called it the three-eyed witness. <laughs> and it wasn't going anywhere. It was a total sham. So I looked at Gary and I said, well, this is a year's work, but let's pull this bill. Yeah. I don't want to have anything on it that has capital punishment back into it. I don't want that on my record. And uh, so we pulled the bill and it died. And uh, as I pointed out, I didn't get a chance to do it again. Yeah. And years later, a lot of the ideas got incorporated in the criminal law piece by piece. Something I thought needed to be done, and I didn't want to be just part of tough on crime. I said, let's be realistic about how we're fighting crime and what we can do about it. Mm. Not just scream at people to bang more heads harder, you know. It, it just didn't seem to me like a productive way to conduct the world and lo and behold guess what's happening today right yeah <laughs> it wasn't like i was talking nonsense it just took <laughs> a few years for people to understand that i was right <laughs> <laughs> so kim we can let's let's just um you know show people here your uh, your book so they can get this if they want to through Rootstock Publishing. They could they could buy it directly, correct? Yeah, it's on, it's on Amazon, and any bookstore will get it for you if, you, if they don't have it. And and as I say, so it's it's so it's over 200, 250, 262 pages. And I want to say too, and I, I love the fact that you already have some of this advanced praise on there. Is that something that Rootstock helped you with? Well, those are called blurbs, you know. Okay. You send it to your readers and ask them, can you say something nice about your book? Okay. And I'm proud of the fact that people were so supportive of it. You know, I honestly think it's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> and one of my friends who's reading said, I like this. It's just like I'm sitting down talking with you about it. I can, I can feel like I was there. Well, this is great. So, so I'm going to say, so uh, Kim, I'm really excited to read this. As I was, we said before we went on the air, I have a, you know, and also being a native Vermonter, I have a sense of nostalgia of of the time when you were when you were there, the 
that transition that Vermont was going through. I mean, you were, you were, you were, you were there for, at a at a such an integral time in Vermont history, and it's and it's amazing, as you said, to to read the book and you're kind of seeing you're kind of getting a, you know, front row seat on history as there. So it's uh, so congratulations on the on the memoir being able to share. So I would say too for anybody that's listening or watching this who who is from Vermont, a native Vermont, or has family in Vermont, this is a great gift to give anybody who wants to add this to their to their Vermont bookshelf. Well, thank you, Marnie. Yeah. I think it's a story for, somebody told me high school students should read this book because so much of life, you make it up as you go along. You didn't do it. Who knows where it'll take you? The one thing we haven't covered is it ends with corruption in the state police. That took years to unravel. In my view, that's why I lost the election because I couldn't penetrate it. Right. But that's another story. I understood it. I just couldn't get my hands around it. Well, great. Well, well, thank you very much, Kim. This has been a genuine pleasure to uh, to talk with you. And uh, and well, good, Bernie. Thanks for having me on. I I hope that. Uh, some of your viewers will pick up the book. And I figured out the other day, I'm, I can make $3 a copy. So I hope you buy a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs>